Our text for uh, the sermon this evening comes to us from the book of 2 Peter. We're going to be continuing our series in 2 Peter. And this evening we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. And I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this evening. So 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, and may he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we... Pray that you would work the truths of your word more deeply in us this evening. Lord, we pray that you would bless your word and that you would send your spirit here tonight to work among us and that you would change us and that we wouldn't be the same when we leave here this evening. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well... I have to say that I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity that I had uh, over the last several months or so to be able to preach regularly on Sunday mornings while we were waiting for Joey to come. That was a very uh, wonderful and fun time for me because I, I really enjoy preaching and I enjoy preaching through books of the Bible and, and being able to build on uh, one sermon after the other. And that was a really, really fun time. I enjoyed it and uh, I hope that you did as well. But One of the things that I think was very uh, providentially helpful in that Joey came in March was that it was around March time when I was suddenly thrust uh, with a whole bunch of extra work. And the work doesn't come from the church, doesn't come from RTS. Uh, It's the fact that I've had a lot of work to do for uh, what's coming after RTS. Uh, Many of you know that I have, uh, Lord willing, ambitions after I finish RTS to go on and to do PhD studies at a university in Scotland, and I'm looking at a couple of different ones. But one of the things I've had to do this spring, especially toward the end of March, is I've 
been fast approaching deadlines for getting my proposal in to my supervisors at the university. And uh, one of the things that I've had to do as I've been trying to put this proposal together is I've had to think very carefully about what my project will be in that program. Because the point of a research proposal is you basically need to to outline exactly what your project's going to be, what you're writing on, how you're going to go about researching for the dissertation project, why the particular university you're applying to is the best option, and then you need to give them a proposed research bibliography. And so altogether, the whole document is something like 25 pages. So it's not a small document. It's, it's fairly substantial for what it is, and it needs to be very dense. And it determines, uh, and among a, no- a number of other things, whether or not you get into the program. So, not, I mean, to put it simply, it's been a very big project, and I've just completed the first draft as of this week. So I'm very uh, excited to have that sort of under my belt a little bit. But, you know, one of the things about a research proposal that I've figured out and that I've been counseled by my professors and so on is that, you know, a research proposal is basically designed to show the university that, you know, you know what you're talking about. That is, that you have carefully researched your topic, you know what other scholars are saying about the topic, and you are able to contribute something to the field of study. That's the goal, that basically you're, you're showing that you are a credible source, or at least in my case, you're fooling them into thinking that you're a credible source. Uh, but no, that's the point of it, right? They want to see that, that they can trust what you're saying. And there's a certain sense in which that's the kind of thing that Peter's dealing with in this passage. Now, Peter's not trying to write a PhD research proposal. If he were, that would not be very helpful for many of us as we wouldn't know what he's talking about. But Peter here is interested in credibility. He is interested in the issue of whether or not his readers can trust him and whether or not his readers can trust the apostles and the prophets as a whole. And so one of the things, in fact, the thing that Peter wants to communicate to his readers in this epistle, and therefore what Peter wants to say to you and to me tonight, is that you can trust the scriptures. You can trust the scriptures. And Peter's going to do this in two ways. He's going to show us that we can trust the scriptures. Number one, because the apostles are credible. And number two, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So we can trust the scriptures because the apostles are credible and because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see as we work our way through Peter's logic here why both of those things are critical for understanding why we can, as Christians, trust the word of God. That's critical for us. So let's look at how Peter does this here. Firstly, because the apostles are credible. And this is in the first few verses here, starting with verse 12. Here's what Peter says. Now, listen to his words here. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So if you remember from the sermon that I preached last time on 2 Peter, which I know was several weeks ago, so we got to do a little refresher here to remember what was happening. 
Second Peter is all about dealing with four major heresies. Okay? Peter is getting toward the end of his life. We can see that here in these verses. Peter's saying, the putting off of my body is soon. I'm coming to the end of my life. It's not too long from now before I will be crucified upside down in Rome because I did not feel that it was worthy, that I was worthy to be crucified in the same way that the Lord Jesus was. So that was how Peter died. And that is what Peter is facing here. He's very close to the end of his life. And so in sort of his final statement, His last thing that he wants to get across to the churches is he wants to address four heresies because these four heresies were being propagated all over the place in the early church. False teachers were abundant, corrupting the Christian religion and running around saying things like you can't trust the apostles, you can't trust the New Testament writings of whatever ones were available at the time. No, you can't trust those guys. We have the right information, and you need to trust us. So that's what the false teachers were doing. They're running around spreading four different heresies. And the first heresy is the one that we looked at last time we were in Second Peter. That first heresy was about antinomianism, which is just a fancy word that means anti-lawism. The idea that Christians don't need to live holy lives. As long as you trust in Christ, you can just run around, you can sin up a storm, and God doesn't care because you are saved under Christ. And that, of course, Peter says, is absolutely incorrect. And we saw that last time we were in this book. Peter says that God has given Christians everything they need for life and for godliness. And what he's talking about there is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit at work in us to sanctify us and to make us more like Christ. So holy lives are important. So we saw Peter deal with that heresy last time. Now, the heresy that Peter wants to deal with in our text today is the second heresy. And this one has to do with the authority of the apostles themselves. Because what the false teachers were doing is they were saying, you know what, Christians? You can't trust Peter. You can't trust Paul. You can't trust any of the apostles. All of their teachings are just a mixture of truth and error, or at the very worst, they might actually just be all error. You can't trust them, and therefore, you can't trust their writings. So you can't trust the New Testament documents that were available to them at the time. Sorry, they're all wrong. We have the right information. That's what the false teachers were saying. And so what Peter does here in this epistle, in his last memoir, his last thing that he's going to say before he dies... He takes the time here to say, here is what I want you to know about the scriptures. Here's what I want you to know about what we have written to you. And here's what he says, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so here what Peter does as he wants to describe the credibility of himself and the rest of the apostles is he indicates three things about the credibility of the apostles, okay? And you have to 
have to very carefully examine the text to pick out these three things. But here's what he says. First thing he says is the apostles have not followed myths. The apostles have not followed myths. Now, when we think of a myth, we're thinking of something like a legend, something like you know, a story about someone or, or some event that may or may not be true. It might have aspects of truth in it. But you, know, you can't really be 100% sure whether the myth is true. It's a story, something that maybe illustrates a spiritual truth, but nonetheless, it's just basically a story. Can't really trust it. Probably was passed down through a couple generations. Uh, it was so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said that, and so-and-so said this, and just this long chain of this guy said that, and this guy said that, myths. And what Peter wants to do is he wants to stomp on that and say, no. We, as the apostles of Jesus Christ, have not been propagating myths. See, Peter's concerned here with the factual truthfulness of the apostles' testimony. That is, when Matthew records that Jesus went up onto a mountain as was transfigured, Matthew is not simply telling a myth. Well, maybe this happened, maybe this didn't happen, but that's not really important. What matters is the spiritual truth that Jesus went on the mountain. No, Matthew's saying Jesus really went on the mountain. The apostles are not communicating myths, things that may or may not be true. They're communicating truth. Now, some people in, in church history have said, well, is it really that big of a deal whether the apostles communicated myths, whether they, the gospel writers talked about myths? I mean, you know, the stories don't have to be true as long as they're spiritually true. Now, this was the view of a guy named David Strauss. He was a biblical scholar, and he said, well, you know, the apostles, they were just repeating myths. They were just repeating legendary stories. And the apostles themselves knew that these myths were probably not true, but that's okay. They were just appropriating the myths, the stories people were passing down about Jesus, in order to communicate spiritual truths. Jesus went up on the mountain. Well, no, but Jesus didn't really go up on the mountain. That's just a story to tell us about how Jesus is sort of like God. Well, you can see that's problematic, especially when you compare it with what the apostles say themselves about what they're saying. Peter says, no, we are not telling you myths. We are telling you real things that happened. We are credible. These things actually happened that we tell you. And so Peter says they didn't communicate myths. But secondly, he says, not only did they not communicate myths, but the apostles themselves also did not communicate cleverly devised myths. Now, that's another kind of thing. Because it's not as if the apostles were communicating, you know, some stories that may or may not be true. But Peter's saying, we also didn't make up anything. We are not trying to be deceptive. We're communicating the truth. We did not devise any of these cute little stories so that we could start a religion. Lo and behold, there have been people in church history that have said exactly that. There was a scholar named Herman Raymaris in the... 18th century. And you know what he said? He said the apostles made up the stories about Jesus. Jesus himself was a political revolutionary who simply wanted to to get rid of Rome and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And Ramiro said, well, Jesus failed. 
He got crucified. That was that. So the disciples lied about the resurrection. They lied about the empty tomb. They lied about all the stories of Jesus so that they could start a new religion and gain power for themselves. But what does Peter have to say about that claim? That Peter says, "Uh uh-uh, no. We do not teach myths, nor do we teach deceptions. We are teaching you the cotton-picking truth. We are teaching you the absolute truth of what happened. And so he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, look, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There's the third thing about the the credibility of the apostles. We're not telling you legends. We're not telling you false things that we made up. And thirdly, we are eyewitnesses of these things. Peter says, I was there when Jesus went on the mountain and his face became like the sun and his garments became white and he shined and illuminated brilliantly over the whole mountain and God himself spoke about Jesus and said, this is the son of God. Peter says, I was there. I saw these things. I saw him die. I saw the empty tomb. I saw the resurrected Lord in his glorified body. I'm an eyewitness to these things. You want to talk about credibility. That was the apostles. You realize that not all religions have this kind of amazing credibility. Think about the the religion of Islam, just for a second, as an example. In Islam, the entire religion is essentially founded on the testimony of one man, Muhammad, the prophet. And Muhammad claims to have received special messages from the angel Gabriel, and then he communicated those messages to his followers. Well, Okay, that's certainly possible theoretically, but how credible is that? See, Peter here is going out of his way to explain the credibility of the things that have happened. He says, I wasn't the only eyewitness. It's not like I received some special mystical messages and now I'm founding a religion. No, it's myself and the rest of the apostles. We all saw these things. Peter was not the only apostle on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so you can see, as Peter wants us to understand, you can trust the scriptures. He wants to establish the credibility of the apostles who wrote the New Testament scriptures. The apostles are credible. And by all worldly standards, if I can put it that way, the apostles are authorities on the person and work of Jesus Christ because they were there and they saw and they heard. Now, if that is everything we had about the scriptures. We wouldn't be getting the full account of how Peter describes how we can have confidence in the scriptures. Because you see, using worldly standards of history and credibility and eyewitnesses and all of that, that's all good and well. But as Peter continues his argument here, he doesn't want us to rest our confidence in the authority of Scripture, merely on the basis of worldly standards like eyewitness testimony and credibility. But rather, Peter moves 
to a further, more profound, more foundational way that we can have confidence in the word of God, that we can believe what it says. And here's what Peter moves on to. This is verse 19 and following. Here's what he says. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so it's at this point that you can see Peter shift in the argument. The first thing he says is you can trust the Scriptures because the apostles are credible. But now he wants to say, you can trust the scriptures because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit that Peter describes here is twofold. Notice the first thing he says about the work of the Holy Spirit in the credibility of scripture. He says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Peter describes here the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that when the biblical authors, the prophets, particularly here in this context, sit down to write the Old Testament books, as Moses sat down to write Genesis, yes, it was Moses' pen and his ink that wrote down, or at least in his case, actually it might be a, a chisel and a rock, but anyway, it was his utensil that wrote all of the words of the Pentateuch. Moses wrote these things. They were his words. God used Moses as a human vessel. And yet, as Moses wrote, it was the Holy Spirit who carried him along. So that Paul can say in the epistle to Timothy that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. That while they are humanly written words, the Spirit was at work guiding everything that the apostles and the prophets were writing. Now, Peter here, strictly speaking, in verse 21, he's talking about prophecy. He's talking about the work of the prophets, that the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But you know what? Peter here, his words are not simply restricted to the Old Testament prophets, because guess what he says in the verse right before that? He says, we have, this is verse 19, we have... The prophetic word. In other words, Peter is placing himself and the apostles on the same level as the Old Testament prophets. That it wasn't just the Old Testament prophets who wrote and were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but it was the New Testament apostles as well. And this is why Peter, later in this book, is going to say that Paul's writings are scripture. And we'll look at that verse later on when we get there. But Peter here is clearly indicating the objective reality that the words of the apostles and the prophets written down in the books of Scripture are not simply the words of the apostles, but they are the words of God carried along in their writing by the work of the Spirit. And so that's the first work of the Spirit that Peter highlights, the objective aspect of the Spirit, that the, that the Word of God is the words of the Spirit. But that's not all Peter says. 
Because he wants us to have absolute confidence in the word of God. Not only are the apostles credible, not only are the writings of the apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit. But listen to what he says in verses 19 and following. Let me read this again. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, Peter does not elaborate on this doctrine in great detail, but that's okay because many other places in Scripture do. Peter's concern here as he elaborates on the work of the Spirit in our confidence in Scripture, is that he doesn't just want us to see that the Scriptures are objectively inspired of God. But he wants us to see that when we as believers come to the Scriptures and when we read them, that there is a light that dawns in our hearts. There is an illumination that happens internally subjectively, that when we come to the scriptures, we are convinced by the work of the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts, who illuminates our dark hearts and brightens them up so that we see the word of God, that when when that happens, we are thoroughly convinced that the scriptures are the word of God. Theologians call this the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is what our Westminster Confession talks about in chapter 1. It says that there are many marks in Scripture where we can can see clearly that the Scriptures are the Word of God. The heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, and many other incomparable excellencies. The confession lists to show us this is the Word of God. But... The confession says, our most sure certainty that the Bible is the word of God is not from any of those proofs. Those are icing on the cake. But rather, our most foundational, fundamental confidence in the scripture is by the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with and by the word in our hearts. It is the illuminating, lighting, internal work of the Spirit whereby we can have full confidence that the Scripture is the Word of God. This is what Jesus talks about when he says that his sheep hear his voice and they come to him. This is what theologians like Augustine and Basil the Great and Amandus Polanus and wonderful, great writers would say that we do not base our confidence of the scripture on credible testimony of the apostles, nor on historical facts. All of those things are wonderful. They're helpful. They buttress our confidence in scripture. They increase our faith in scripture. But if we ground our confidence in scripture on reasonable arguments and historical arguments, And Scripture ceases to be the foundation. Rather, Scripture itself is the foundation. Scripture itself is the foundation for our confidence. The Holy Spirit works this confidence deeply within us as we read the Scriptures through His internal testimony. 
Now, you might say, well, this sounds like a lot of really interesting deep theology, but how does this really affect me that much? And here's, here's how this works, right? If, if Peter's argument stopped and all he said was, yeah, you can have confidence in the scriptures because our, our witness as the apostles is credible. If that's all Peter said, then we as Christians would have to become professional historians in order to have confidence that the scripture is the word of God. Because we would then have to investigate whether or not the apostles are credible. We would have to examine the historical facts. We would have to accumulate all kinds of abundance. We'd have to get our PhDs in historical theology or in history, and then you'd have to write research proposals, which you don't want to do because it's a lot of work. Nobody wants to become a professional historian, and you know what? God knows that. God knows that. Our confidence... Our confidence in the word of God as the word of God is not on the basis of reasonable arguments. Those things are helpful, but they are not our foundation. Our confidence, our sure confidence that this book is in fact God's word is because the spirit is at work in us. Revealing and illuminating to us that our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking in this book. And we as his sheep hear his voice and we run to him. So that when we read this book, we are convinced by the spirit that that this is not a pile of paper. That this is not a largely irrelevant book of of words and, and, and irrelevant material. But that when we read this book under the power of the Holy Spirit, we realize That we are holding fire in our hands. This is the living word of God. And we know it. The spirit convinces us of it. And so you see Peter's words here in this epistle are profoundly applicable to us. As we live in a world that is constantly screaming to us. You can't trust the Bible. There are errors in there. You can't trust the Bible. How do you know that's the word of God? You can't trust the Bible. You can't trust those apostles. Who knows whether Jesus said what he said? No, we can have confidence. Because the Bible itself teaches that the spirit of God illumines our hearts and shows us that this is the word of God. Have confidence in scripture. Have confidence in the word of God. This book is the words of the living God. And they are powerful to change us. Hold fast to the word of God tonight. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we rejoice this evening that we don't have to become professional historians to know that the scripture is your word. Oh God, we rejoice that the Christian religion is founded on wonderful eyewitness testimony and credible sources. Those things, those reasonable arguments, they work to bolster our confidence, but they are not the grounds of it. Oh Lord, help us to see that it is the illuminating and inspiring work of the Holy Spirit whereby we are convinced that the word of God is the word of God.
Lord, help us to have strong, ongoing, enduring confidence in the scriptures to see that we can trust this book. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to work faith deep within our hearts so we can trust your word. We pray, Lord, that you would work this firm foundation deep within us this evening. We pray all of these things in the holy and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.